All right, if you got your Bible and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Job 38 through chapter 42, verse 6. We won't quite finish up today. We'll have uh, one more lesson in the book of Job, but um, we'll, get, uh, we'll get fairly close to today. The title of our lesson is God Shows Up. God Shows Up. Now... We are, we, we've ended chapter 37 last week and we've come to chapter 38. And I just want to remind you that Job has been lying or sitting on this ash heap for months in just misery. Okay. He's, remember, he's got open sores all over his body. He's, he's lost all of his wealth. And, and heaviest burden of all is he's carrying the grief of the loss of his Ten children. He is repulsive to his wife. He's loathsome to his friends. I'm sure the by this time the little kids are coming out and and throwing tomatoes at him and making fun of him and laughing at him. I mean, he is just a he's a repulsion to all those around him. Now, at first he he bore these calamities with really it, it was amazing what he did. We all remember the famous statements from Job that, that he makes in chapters 1 and 2. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. I came into this world uh, naked, I'll go out. Uh, I came in with nothing, I'll go out with nothing. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? He says all these things, and it, and it tells us, in all of this, Job never sinned with his lips. He never say, uh, sinned in what he said. But as the misery drags out... Job begins to waver in his faith. He begins to waver in his confidence that God is for him. Now listen, I want to tell you, don't you think that's absolutely normal? I mean, that is absolutely normal. Almost all of us, when we go through a trial or something happens to us, at the very beginning, we're all... We're all, all for God, right? If God is for me, who can be against me, right? Uh, what can separate me from the love of God? We're, we're quoting scriptures and, and we're strong. But as that thing goes on for days and sometimes weeks and sometimes months and sometimes years, it is absolutely normal that for Christians to say, you know, where are you, God? What, what, what is going on here? So Job is just, he's a man. He's not some kind of superhuman being. He's just a man. And as this goes and drags on, he begins to waver. Now, in the middle of this wavering of confidence, right, in the middle of this struggle that he's beginning to have, is God for me. He's got to defend himself against this bad theology from his three friends. And in this defending of himself, he said some things about God that were not true. He, he began to insist on his own righteousness at the expense of, of God's justice. You know, he, he, one time, for example, in Job chapter 13, he asked God, why do you count me as your enemy? Well, he's not God's enemy. He has no idea what's going on, but he just assumes, well, God is treating me like I'm his enemy. God is counting me as his, his enemy. So these is, this is an example of some of the things that come out of his mouth that they're just not, they're not true. Now, he begins to complain to God, and, and we've said this numerous times, for example, in Job. Judgment seat of God, that I might... 
him, that I might make my argument so that he would find me innocent. I just know if he'd hear me, he would, he would change all of this, right? So he's, he, he's, this is the part of the struggle that's going on. And then all of a sudden, when the friends finally shut up, this guy named Elihu steps in, and he rebukes both Job and his friends. And he has a, he has a completely point of view, a different point of view, with regard to Job's suffering. See, one of the things we have to understand about Job, God originally allowed go, uh, uh, Job's suffering in response to a challenge from Satan. The, the point of Job's suffering was to prove to Satan that, God, that Job cherished God more than his family, more than his wealth, and more than his, uh, than his own health. That was the ori- original point of all of this suffering. But even after Job stands fast in the faith, even after, after Satan, by the way, is long gone, he's long gone, he's never even mentioned again, the suffering continues to go on and on. Now, the question is, why? Why didn't God just say, oh, now that that's over with, why don't we just make everything right? No, because God had another purpose. It wasn't just to show Satan and the demon hordes and the, and the principalities and powers of the air who Job was and what real faith was. It, it had, he had another purpose. And that purpose, according to Elihu, was to purge the pride out of Job's life. We, we said it last week. There was a residue of pride down inside of Job. And as long as everything was going good, like, the, like sediment at the bottom of a glass, it just sat there. But you shake that glass up, you shake somebody's life, and things come out that they might not even know really even existed. And that's exactly what happened in in Job's life. So this is where we are as we come to chapter 38. Job's suffering has a twofold explanation. Number one, its first and initial purpose was to show the the value of God's glory, to show the value of God, to demonstrate who He is, to demonstrate what real faith is, that people will love God, not just for what He can give, but for who that he is. That was the first uh, purpose. But the second purpose and the ongoing purpose was to refine Job's righteousness. So Job's suffering is not punishment. God's not mad with him. It's not a sign of God's anger or anything like that. In fact, his suffering is a sign of God's love. Now, a lot of people will have problems with that. I understand that. A lot of people will say, well, now wait just a minute. It's one thing for, for God to, to reach over and kind of, you know, paddle you a little bit and say, hey, you need to get back in line. But this kind of suffering, the loss of children, the loss of wealth, the loss of, of health, how can that be a sign of God's love? I want to remind you of a scripture. And these are the words of Jesus himself. This is in Matthew five twenty nine. This is what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, you know, a lot of people question this scripture. Let me tell you something. God is not telling you, or Jesus is not saying, act literally, rip out your eye. Let me tell you why. First of all, if you rip out your right eye, you still got your left eye. You can still, everybody with me? You still got your other eye. That doesn't even stop you from seeing. And we all know it's not your eye that causes you to sin. It's what's in your heart. It's what comes out of the heart of a man. That's murderings and lust and jealousy and anger. That comes from deep inside. It's not your, it's not your eye. So that's not what he's saying. So what is Jesus saying in that? His point is this, that sanctification 
is worth any pain or any loss on this earth. Your sanctification, your holiness is worth any pain and any loss on this earth. That's what he's saying. And by the way, if that doesn't seem obvious to us, it's probably because we don't hate sin and prize holiness the way God does. Let me say it again. We don't hate sin and we don't prize holiness the way that God does. You see, God values things like that, righteousness and holiness and sanctification. He values them incredibly highly. In fact, he, 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 he values them so highly that the removal of something like the disease of pride out of your life is the most loving thing that he can do, no matter what the cost. And you and I need to, need to see that and understand that better. Now, into this situation, God comes in chapter 38, and he finally speaks. Let's read it, Job 38, 1 through 3. <clears throat> then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, let me stop right there. If you go back to chapter 37, who just finished speaking? It was Elihu, wasn't it? And a lot of people think that, it, some people actually believe, <laughs> I don't know how they believe this, but they actually believe that in all this stuff God is saying, he's talking to Elihu. So I want to point out, the Lord answered who? Job. He's not talking to Elihu. He's not talking to the three friends right now. He, he's responding to Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, all of this time, let me stop right here. Let me, what if you had never read this book, and I tell you that in all of this, God is going to show up at the end and say what he wants to say. I, I would, most of us, like Job, would expect God to show up and settle all this dispute by proving him right and explaining the reason for his suffering. By the way, Job's friends would have expected God to show up and prove them right and show Job that he's a sinful man. And you and I, if we had never read this book before, we would expect God to say, Job, Job, just calm down. Let me tell you what was happening in heaven. Wouldn't you expect that? That he would show up and say, let me tell you about Satan came before me. And I said, have you seen Job? And, and Satan said, boy, if you just take all this stuff away from him, he'll curse you to your face. We expect God would do that. But God's not going to do what anybody expects. He's going to settle this dispute, but he's going to settle it in a way that nobody would have ever uh, foreseen. Nobody would have ever Expected. So God comes and he speaks directly to Job. And here's the crazy thing. He never answers a single one of Job's questions. Not a one. All these things that Job's been worried about and questioned, God never, not one minute, answers even a single question. In fact, God, when he shows up, he's been questioned long enough. It's time to put Job in the dock. It's time to put Job in the witness chair. God is going to be the do, doing the one answer the question. And by the way, I want you to understand something. God, <clears throat> even though this is God speaking, He doesn't really offer anything new here. In fact, He doesn't say anything that you and I don't know. He doesn't say anything that Job doesn't already know. In fact, it's not what He says here 
that significant. What makes these chapters so fascinating is just the fact that God himself is saying it. He's not saying anything new. He doesn't come out with any great uh, new hidden mystery or, or, or reveal some hidden mystery. He just says some few things that we already know. What makes them so fascinating is the fact that God himself says them. Now, he starts off talking about the world below. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. He says this to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation? And by the way, if you ever wonder, can God be sarcastic? You're going to find out real quick. He, he can be sarcastic. He says this, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely, you know. Or, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? And then after he's kind of talked a little bit about the world below, he moves on to the world above. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? God says... You know, for you were born then, and the numbers of your days is great. And that's about as sarcastic as you can be, isn't it? Sure you know, Job. You you were born when I did all that. You've lived so long. Go ahead and, and tell me. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? What is the place, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? So he's talking about all of these things. Surely you know. Do you know any of these things? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Now here is God's point. Like I said, he's not uncovering any great mystery, is he? We know he made all these things. We know he controls all all those things. Job knows those things. So what's God's point? You see, whether he's focusing on the dawn, whether he's focusing on the stars, whether he's focusing on the sea, whether he's focusing on the frost, whatever the upshot is in all of this, Job is ignorant. Job doesn't know where those things come from. Job doesn't know how to make all those things worth. Job doesn't know any of these questions. They're all rhetorical questions, right? The answer to them all is no. He doesn't know any of those things. He's never been to the bottom of the sea. He's never even been, by the way, around the world. And he's lived only a few short decades. Who is he to tell God how to run the earth? Who is he to argue with God about how God does things? You see, Job is utterly below and above. God wants him to see you are completely surrounded by mysteries. And by the way, so are we. So are we. Did you know that even today, all those questions, a lot of those questions that God asked, scientists have no idea about how any of those came about. No clue. I just finished reading this fascinating book. 
It's called Darwin's Doubt. It's written by a guy by the name of Stephen Meyer, who's a, who's a Christian. And it is an absolutely fascinating book. It's hard to read. It's way over my head, but, but I stumbled my way, my way through it. And one of the things he talks about in this book is that when Darwin, in 1850 or whenever it was, came up with his theory of evolution, he knew that it had holes in it. He knew that. He said, okay, this, 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 I can't explain this, and I can't explain this, and I can't explain these things. But he said, one day, after I'm long gone and scientists are, have more technology, they're going to fill in those holes and, and, and make my theory as good. What's happened, though, in the last 150, 170 years, whatever case, those holes haven't been filled in. They've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <clears throat> and the amazing thing about this book is, is one of the biggest things, did you know... <clears throat> I, I literally believe there's a conspiracy in the scientific community. I literally believe that. Did you know there are scientists today that go to conferences and talk about the fact they need a new theory? Because the theory of evolution explains nothing. Nothing. But yet, you get on, they, if you try to get up as a scientist, if you try to go before a school and talk about anything other, they'll shut you down. If you try to get on TV and talk about that the theory of evolution doesn't work, they'll shut you down. In other words, they want you to just, they want you to drink the Kool-Aid. You keep drinking the Kool-Aid while they work on trying to find something else because it, it is completely blown out of the water. In fact, scientific advancements of the last 200 years have only deepened the mystery. See, when they discovered DNA, they backed up and said, whoa, where did that come from? That, that's, that's computer code. That's literally code that tells these cells and these proteins how to fold themselves and go be part of the liver or go be part of the earlobe or go be part of the big toe. What, what, what's driving all this? And it just blew the theory of evolution because it, 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 they realized quickly there's no way that could have ever just happened, but they won't tell you that. They'll talk about it among themselves, but they won't tell you that. You see, the fact is we should even today be overwhelmed with our ignorance, not proud of our limited knowledge. There's so much we don't know. Even in this word, we have to accept. If I ask you today, who wrote the book of Romans, what would you say? What? Paul wrote the book of Romans? God. Which is it? Is it God or is it Paul? It's a mystery, isn't it? Did, did Paul write one sentence and the Holy Spirit wrote another? Or... In, is that the way? It, it's a mystery, isn't it? Life is like that. If I ask you who lives the Christian life, and who lives your Christian life, what would you say? Who is it? Is it you? Really? What does Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then Paul says, he goes on to say this. Yet the life I live. See, even Paul don't know. Well, who is it? Is it you? Is it Christ? It's a mystery, isn't it? It's just full of mysteries. Was Jesus a God or was He a man? Which was He? Was He, was he half God, half man? You can't explain it, can you? Is God three or is He one? You understand what I'm saying? The fact is, we are surrounded with mysteries. Surrounded with mysteries. And that's what God is just showing up and saying, you don't know nothing. 
You don't know anything, Job. You don't even know the plain little things that go on around you. You can't explain them. How much can you? How much more are you ignorant about the deep things of God? That's what he, the point that he's trying to get across. Now, God's not finished. He moves on to the world of animals. Job thirty-eight, thirty-nine to forty-one. Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides uh, for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Their young ones become strong. They grow up out in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Do you give the horse its might? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Over and over, God just asked this question. Do you know? Do you know? Do you understand? Have you figured it out? And see, the answer over and over in Job's mind is no, 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 no. He's ignorant. He doesn't have the knowledge to answer any of those questions. He didn't make them. He didn't know how to control them. He doesn't know how to sustain them. And yet this ignorant man who, who can't answer any of these questions about the way the earth works has the audacity to stand up and question the God who knows the answer to all of those questions. Now, at this point, God kind of stops and pauses. And, he, and he's looking for a response from, from Job. This is in Job 41 through 5. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hands on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. You see, Job is getting the point. He's getting the point. A finite creature, somebody who has been created, who has no knowledge of 99.9999% of how things are done, is utterly ignorant of the ways of God, has no business condemning God for the way that he runs things. No business. Even, even asking the questions is no business of his. But God's not finished. He's going to move on. He's got more to say. Job 39, 6 through 9. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then he asked a question that we're going to talk about. He said this, Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like His? Now, We need to stop right there and look at what God just said. Because God makes an argument that can be a little bit disturbing. Let me go back and show it again, what he says. He says, have you an arm like God? He doesn't, now he's changing, right? Before he said, do you know? Do you know? Do you understand? Now he changes the question. He said, are you like me? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Now, see, there's a little bit of a disturbing argument here, and here's why. 
we got a, a saying that we say in the English language. We say, might makes right. You ever heard that? In other words, whoever's got the power makes the rules. If you got the power, you make the rules. Might makes right. See, here's the question. Is God saying that he's right simply because he's God? Is he saying that we have to submit to what he does and submit to what he says simply because he's more powerful than we are or stronger than we are or more able than we are? In other words, is something good and right and just just because God does it? Is that what God is saying? Well, the answer to that, once again, can be kind of a mystery. It's yes and it's no. First of all, it's yes. You see, on the one hand, God is God. And what that means is he, can, he doesn't answer to anything outside of himself. Because, by the way, if he did, that thing would be over him. You understand that? That's what it means to be God. You cannot be beholding to anything outside of yourself because if you were, that thing would be over you. It would be stronger than you. It would be greater than you. That's why when God swears, he swears by what? Himself. Because there's nothing greater to swear to. He swears by himself that I'll do this thing. Because he's God. He's at the top of the food chain, so to speak. So he cannot be judged by anything outside of himself. So when God says it, it's right. It's just. It's good. Just because he's God. So in that sense, the answer is yes. But at the same time, the answer is no. God, God doesn't want us to, to, to think, well, it's right just because God said it. He doesn't want us to think that in the sense that God could say something foolish or arbitrary or irrational and we have to accept it as truth. He doesn't want us to see him that way. Instead, he wants us to see it that when he says things and does, does things, he's always got a purpose that is good and right and just. Now, he confirms this in Job 40, 10 through 15. Watch what he says. He's saying this to Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. You see what God is saying. Do you have an arm like me that uses my power like that? See, his point is, it's not, this, not just that he's strong. See, that's very, what he's arguing there is very different from just saying, might makes right. What he's arguing is very different from saying, Job, I'm God, you just do what I say. Instead, what God wants us to see is that he employs his might. He employs his strength. He employs his voice to abase the proud and by implication to exalt the humble. In other words, God is, is right, not simply because he's God, not simply because he's over us. He's God because he uses his might and he uses his power consistent with his character. That's what he wants us to see there. Now, God has, what he does here is he brings Job into submission in two ways. The first thing he does is he reminds Job of all the things that come with running the world. All the things that Job knows absolutely nothing about. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he shows that his might and his decisions are right. Because he uses them. They're not just arbitrary, as we said last week. He uses them for purpose. Now, 
It is presumptuous for Job to assume he can counsel God. He, he can't begin to know. Can you imagine for one second? I mean, sometimes I try to think like this and it just blows my mind. That, you know, if God just had to rule over my life and he just had to make decisions in my life that not only would bring me joy, ultimate joy, but also bring him glory. That would be a big undertaking, right? But he does it in your life, in your life, in your life, and seven billion other people's lives. All the time running the world, all the time feeding the animals and controlling the weather and doing all these. That's God. Can you imagine the intellect that it takes to do that? Can you imagine the capacity? Can you imagine what it means to be God? That's what he wants Job to see. Who do you think you are? A a puny little man. And, And you dare question me about this. The lesson here for Job is obvious. Job, you need to submit to the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, and the power of God. He knows what he's doing. Let him take care of it. And by the way, that is exactly what Job does. He submits to God by stating three incredible truths. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But before we get there, there's one more thing we need to understand. Job is about to change. In fact, Job is fixing to say, you know what? I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm sorry. I repent. I despise myself. Something has broken inside of Job. Something has changed inside of Job. The question is, what changed him? Now, we know it wasn't the bad theology of his three friends, right? They're arguing with him, and he's arguing back and forth, and he just won't, he won't submit. Because he, in his eyes, he hadn't done anything wrong. So we know it wasn't their bad theology. By the way, it wasn't the good theology of Elihu either. See, Elihu has all this good... And and everything Elihu said was right. We talked about that last week. You can listen to the podcast if you weren't here. He had good theology, but that didn't change Job either. Elihu finished speaking. Job didn't say anything. But here's the key I want you to see today. It also isn't God's words that changed Job. It's not just God's words. By the way, I said it before, I'll say it again. He doesn't say anything that Job doesn't already know. So it isn't like he showed up and he said something profound and Job is like, oh man, now that I know that, I I can see. No, it wasn't that either. By the way, you understand people all over this world hear God's word and read God's word every day and it doesn't change anything in them. Just, his, just hearing his word wasn't enough to change Job. That's not what changed him. So what changed him, what changed him is that God showed up. What changed him, you see, there's a knowledge of God that only comes through tasting. You can pick up that Bible every day. But let me tell you, if God, all the theology in the world will not change your heart if God doesn't show up. It's not about the words on a page. It's not even about the words that come out of his mouth. The words on that page came out of his mouth. And people read it every day. It doesn't change anything. They twist it and misuse it and, and, and use it to their own advantage. But you see, when God himself shows up in your life, you're going to change. See, what's more important than what God said is that God himself showed up, his presence at his own initiative in Job's life. And when he appeared to Job, that changed everything. 
And see, that's the same thing for true as for you and I. When God shows up, all of a sudden that word isn't just the word anymore. It's the very presence of God in your life. And that changes everything. I want want to be honest with you. God shows up with Job. Ask him a bunch of questions that are unanswerable. Job says, I, 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 don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. I shut my mouth. And they're meant as a form of rebuke, yes? God shows up in Job's life and he rebukes Job. Yet if you just see this appearance of, 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 of God in Job's life as a rebuke, you would, be, you would miss the whole thing. You would be gravely mistaken. You see, Job's greatest agony, his greatest agony was that God had abandoned him. That's what, that, that just killed him. He kept saying it. God is, I used to be his friend. Now it's like I'm his enemy. That was his greatest agony. But see, now he knows that's not true. God didn't say anything. He didn't already know, but God showed up. And even a, even a rebuke from God cannot take away the comfort that that gives Job. That, that cannot take away the comfort that God's showing up in his life. Feeling once again the presence of God. That changed everything. You see, it didn't really matter what God said, to be quite honest. The very fact that he showed up and said it is enough for Job. See, all he needs to know is that everything's okay between me and God. And knowing that changes everything. Job now has a new sense of the reality of of God. It's more than knowledge in the head. Now it's down in his heart. And the result of that is a broken and a changed man. Job, like numerous believers will do after him, comes to this conclusion, I can face anything as long as God is with me. I can face anything as long as God is with me. What a, I was listening to a song this morning by Mercy Me, and y'all all know it. It's about the guy, and he's saying, I, you know, normally I get up and sing, and I tell everybody it's going to be all right, but right now, I just can't. And if you go on and read that song, there's a part down there at the end I was listening to. And he said, it. but as long as he's here, I can, ta- I can go through anything. I can take anything. As long as I know he's not against me and he's with me. But you see, that takes... I can't, I can't teach you that. You can't read that into your heart. God has got to show up in your life and just give you that assurance. And let me tell you, when he does, it's okay. Having cancer is okay. Dealing with the loss of a love. Not saying any of that's not hard. But you can do it because now you know God is, God is with me. I think it's Peter said, cast your cares on Him. Why? Not because He can handle them. Not because He can, can, can take them away from you. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. He loves you. He's with you. See, knowing that changes everything, and it changes it for for Job. Job submits to God in three ways. He, 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 He says these three great truths that are just amazing. The first thing he does is he submits to God's sovereignty. Job 42, 1 through 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign. Let me tell you, if anybody ever tells you that God is obligated to do something in your life, you throw that out. God ain't obligated to do nothing. He is sovereign. 
He is a sovereign God, a sovereign physician, and He is allowing things in your life, and He's got purpose for that. You can't rule Him. You can't make Him do anything you want Him to do by saying magic words or praying magic prayers or somehow doing... all. No. God is the sovereign God of the universe. And Job lays down and submits and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Number two, he submits to God's wisdom and he submits to God's knowledge. Job 42, 3. He says this. By the way, this is a question that God asked him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was a question from God in Job 38.2 to Job. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says, you asked me that, God. And then Job says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And thirdly, he repents of the things that he said. You remember what I said last week about Elihu? Job's friends accused Job of sinning before he suffered. Elihu comes on the scene and says, No, Job, you've sinned since you started suffering. It's not what you did, Job, it's what you said. And Job, right now, is going to repent of that. Job 42, 4 through 6. Once again, he's repeating a question from God. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job says, in, in answer to that, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Jacob, Jacob, <laughs> Jacob, Job is a broken and changed man because now he has seen God. Or he sees himself in relation to God as he really is. See, for one thing, God just shows up and says, I mean, you don't have to do much, really. He just shows up, and Job says, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I had heard of you. I heard what other people said about you, but now I really, I really see you for who he was, not just for who he By the way, do you understand that happens to anybody who sees God for who he really is? It happened to Isaiah. Isaiah said this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what is his reaction? Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. You know, I hear people saying all this stuff about going to heaven and seeing God and seeing Jesus and, and, for, and all these things. They never fall on their knees or fall on their... But every human being in the Bible that sees God, there's always this reaction. Woe is me. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. It happened to, uh, to, to uh, uh, Peter. In Luke 5, 4 through 8, Jesus said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I, I, I can't be around you. And you see God, and all of a sudden you see yourself for who you really are. That's what happened to Job. It's what happened to Isaiah. It's what happened to Peter. It's what happened to the centurion. Luke 7, 3 through 6, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And Jesus went with them. And when he's not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, don't even trouble yourself. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy. The Bible, if you go back and read that story, the Bible said Jesus marveled at his faith. Marveled at his faith. 
all those Pharisees would stand before Jesus Christ and argue with him. And, and, and this man says, don't even come under my roof. I, I am unclean. And the Bible says Jesus marveled. He said, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. You see, before Job saw God in this way, he thought, I'm a good man. I haven't done, I haven't sinned. I, I'm, a, I'm a good man. And he didn't even hesitate to assert that he was a good man. By the way, he was a good man. But you see, now in relation to God, he sees himself clearly. And what he sees drives him to repentance. The question is, do we feel the same way? Do we feel, before a holy God, do we feel grieved for our sin? Do we feel unworthy to be in His presence? Do we, feel, do, do we have those feelings? You see, if we don't, we need to pray God will show up in that way. Because I'm going to tell you, there's something about God showing up in that way that changes everything. It changes everything. See, we have to, God has to stop being a mere doctrine, mere theology that we hear with our ears. Too many Christians, it's just, it's just about what's written in that book. And that book is great and good and powerful and right. But we need God to show up in our lives. We need to see Him as the awesome, infinite, holy, sovereign God of the universe that He really is. And we need to see that not with our head, but somewhere down deep inside of us. There are four lessons. And again, we're not done with Job. We'll come back next week. we got just a few verses to, to cover. Four profound lessons that we can learn here. And they're very plain lessons. They're very simple lessons. But they are profound. Number one, we need to believe with all of our heart in the sovereignty of God. Let me say that again. We need to believe with all of our heart that God is in control. That nothing happens in my life outside the allowance of God. God is allowing that thing to happen. We need to pray that God would give us that conviction. Listen, I've been around for a while. I spent a lot of my life not believing that. Spent a lot of my life not believing that. But when God showed up and showed me that, it changed everything. And I've never been the same. Never been the same. In fact, when we finish, we will finish Job next week. We're going to roll right into about a four or five week study in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to show you things in the Bible that you've probably never seen about God and His sovereignty. Because I, I think it's a perfectly good fit to roll into that right after Job. But we need to believe it. Not just something comes out of our mouth. Yeah, God is sovereign. No, we need to believe it with every fiber of our being like Job did. Number two, we need to believe with all of our heart that all that God does is good and right. We don't understand it. Trust me, we, there's a lot going on, things that happen in my life, in your life, I cannot understand. But we have to believe that a good God, a loving God, a just God knows what He's doing. We need to pray that God will give us that assurance. The other thing we need to do, and I know I had to do this, and I hope we all, we all, listen, we've all been like Job. We've all questioned God from time to time. We've all said things about God that's not right. We've all said things about God that's not true. We found fault with His ways from time to time, especially when we go through hard times and suffering. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of that. Job did. We're no different, Right? Number four, be satisfied with the will of God in your life. 
be satisfied with the will of God. If you believe He's sovereign, if you believe that all His ways are just and good, then be satisfied with the decisions He makes for you. I've told you guys this before. I honestly believe, I think we'll step into heaven and we'll see things in a way that we never, Somebody, the, the cloud will come off. Looking through the glass darkly will be brought away. And all of a sudden you will say, Oh, oh, oh. Trusting, trusting, that's coming. Oh, God, now I see. Will we trust Him on this side? Will we believe in Him? Will we put our faith in Him? Next week, we'll close with our final lesson in Job, restoration. Let's pray. Father.